those things really well. It's not just youth, of course, that this matters for. Uh, as we get older, we can often uh, forget why we first believed. Or perhaps we realise, well, I'm not even sure I know the reasons I believe. I can't remember the reasons that sort of bolster and uh, underpins my faith. Now, as a side note, I suppose, there are a stack of brilliant books, wonderful podcasts that can be very helpful for us. Uh, many of you will know the word apologetics. Apologetics. Uh, apologetics is all about defending our faith, giving a reasonable account for it. Uh, good books on apologetics are well worth uh, working through tough questions, uh, for thinking through historical evidence, for the philosophical reasoning uh, that is often required to, to engage in tough questions. For some of you, actually quite a lot of you, if you're thinking about what to read this year, I'd really recommend a good book on apologetics, something that will help you think, uh, to answer and wrestle with tough questions well, to help us know more richly why we believe what we believe. Um, we might have a bookstall uh, in the coming months, I'll try and get some good apologetics books there, and you can just ask me or uh, someone else you know who, who does read those sorts of things to get some good recommendations for you. Today though, uh, the real focus is doing apologetics with Jesus. He is defending belief in him, although I guess it's a bit rough, a bit, a bit, he's not really defending, is he? He's a bit more uh, on the front foot than a defence, isn't he? He's making a real argument, a real case. He's actually, I think, like a courtroom lawyer. Uh, he's rolling out one piece of evidence after another. In fact, if you look at the, the language used here, uh, this is really like a courtroom. Uh, Jesus used the words testimony or testify about a dozen times, I think, uh, and it's exactly the same word you would use for a witness in a courtroom. Uh, you know how it works in a courtroom with witnesses, right? Um, a witness comes in and they give their testimony uh, about what they saw, about what they heard. And witness testimony is a huge part of valuable evidence to help convince the jury or the judge uh, what is true, what really happened. So as we read this passage, uh, John chapter 5, we get to be a bit like the jury, don't we? We can sort of hear what Jesus is saying, we can weigh up the evidence presented um, about Jesus as he calls one witness after another. That's what's kind of happening. So have a look at verse 31. Uh, Jesus says, if, uh, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, he's clearly not saying that anything Jesus says about himself is, is false. Like, that'd be a ridiculous thing for him to say. What he's saying there, he's acknowledging that in Jewish law, more than one witness was needed for a testimony to be counted valid. You couldn't just have one guy rock up and say, oh, this happened. Uh, you needed at least another person to come and, and confirm and to validate that the first person said uh, it's something true. Now, what Jesus has just said in the previous passage is, I am the Son of God. He's argued that he is equal with the Father. He's been given authority to judge the world. And now he's saying, don't just take my word for it. Consider John the Baptist. Now, we heard about uh, John the Baptist about this time last year uh, as we worked through John's Gospel. And it's not the same John who wrote what we're reading today, by the way. It's a different John. Uh, but John the Baptist was a really, really big deal. Uh, the whole countryside uh, came out to see John. Everyone, everyone around him wanted to know what he had to say. Uh, actually, John the Baptist is known outside of the Bible by historians as well. Uh, he's very much an established historical figure. Uh, he was a big deal. Uh, he even actually gets a good mention in the Quran, uh, which is a topic for another day. But John's main message was, uh, the Lord is about to come. He's coming. Get ready. Get ready by preparing your hearts. Repent. Turn away from your works of evil. And get ready to meet God. He's about to come and change everything. That was John the Baptist's message. And the Jewish leaders, the same ones, I think, that Jesus is having this argument with, um, they asked John, tell us what you know. And they went to listen to him and find out from him what he knew. 
And very, very publicly, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, that one, this is the one I've been talking about. He is the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. He is the Messiah. Now, should we believe John the Baptist? Um, I would say he is something like an expert witness in this courtroom. Um, in a courtroom, uh, you might call in an expert witness. Say that, imagine uh, it's a legal case that involves some kind of medical problem. Um, lawyers might call in a doctor who has a particular expert uh, knowledge in that field to give their testimony about the medical issue in the case. Or imagine a bridge collapses, there's a court case. Uh, the lawyers might bring in expert engineers who had nothing to do with that bridge being built, but they can give their testimony about bridge design, about building materials, all that sort of stuff. They give independent testimony as an expert in that, el- in that area. John, uh, John the Baptist was very much an expert in these matters. Everyone knew him as a real prophet speaking on God's behalf. And Jesus says in verse 35 to the Jewish leaders, you chose for a time to enjoy his light. That is, these Jewish leaders themselves, they regarded John as an expert witness. And Jesus says, well, you did believe most of what he said. Why not believe him when he talks about me as well? Now, I realize for those who might be skeptical about these things, uh, it might not sound a convincing argument for us. We'll just listen to John, who was a prophet. But for the Jewish uh, leaders here, uh, this first witness is one they respected. By their own standards, he is a good witness well worth listening to. They thought him a legitimate prophet and therefore a reliable witness. So what for us would be a reliable witness? It's a very important question, isn't it? What would be a reliable witness that we would trust uh, in this courtroom, as it were? Jesus doesn't make this point here, but the author John, uh, the author John makes the point all through his book, actually, uh, that John the Baptist passed the baton on to the other disciples to be witnesses about who Jesus is. So when you think about what Jesus does with his disciples, he surrounds himself uh, with disciples, 12 of them in the inner circle, um, coincidentally enough to fill a jury box, um, intelligent people, people of integrity, and he had dozens more, by the way, dozens more friends and uh, disciples in a, in a wider circle around him. They spent at least three years with Jesus, living with him, traveling with him, seeing him tired, seeing him hungry, Seeing him after a hard day's work, arguing with Pharisees. Well, they knew what he was like. They'd seen it all. And elsewhere, Jesus tells his disciples, you will be my witnesses. It's a legal term. You will be my witnesses. You will be testifying to what you have seen and heard. And that's what they do. John, who wrote this, is one of those disciples. This is his testimony we're reading at one level. Now, the big question, though, do we have reason to trust these witnesses? It's a very important question. I've seen enough movies uh, with you know, courtrooms to know that if a witness is going to hurt a lawyer's case, if a witness has got some damning evidence or they've got something they're going to say that's going to just blow the case apart, uh, if that's the case, the main thing the lawyer will try and do is make the witness so they can't be trusted, show that they're unreliable as a witness. You know, they have a history of lying or um, they have a financial motive for saying what they're saying or they're insane. Whatever it is, the lawyer is trying to under, um, underplay their reliability. So the question is, are Jesus' disciples reliable witnesses? A few points on that. I suppose, first off, bear in mind that uh, the disciples knew how much Jesus cared about the truth. Uh, They really knew uh, his great uh, passion for truth. So it strikes me it would hardly be a fitting legacy uh, for for his disciples to lie about Jesus, would it? This great man who cares about truth to go and lie about him doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But more than that, it's clear the disciples had nothing to gain for testifying that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, They had nothing to gain from saying he rose from the dead. In fact, they had the opposite. They had everything to lose, and they did. At one level. 
See, history records, as best we can know, that 11 of those 12 earliest disciples were killed, uh, intentionally, <laughs> for their testimony, often under incredible pressure, torture, and they testified, everyone, to their last breath, this is Jesus, the Son of God, who rose from the dead. Now, I personally, I can imagine two or three people cooking up a, a crazy story. Uh, I can imagine them caring about it enough to protect that story and lie about it for a long time and keep the lie going. But 12 of them, more than that, but let's just 12 apostles, not one of them saved their own life by saying, nah, we made it all up. Uh, it was just a big, big joke. They all could have changed their story. They could have saved their lives. They had nothing to gain from this story. But they testified regardless because they knew what they saw. One of the other things that's important in working out if a witness is reliable is to compare the statements of different witnesses, uh, of a few of them. Uh, trial lawyers will tell us, uh, if you hear the exact same story told in exactly the same way from multiple witnesses, you should be very suspicious. It's exactly the same story, exactly the same way, you should be very suspicious, especially if uh, the witnesses make themselves sound quite good uh, in the story. See, normally when three people see the same thing happen, they'll describe it in three very different ways. Like one person might say, well, the car was red. Another person might say instead, well, the car was a 2008 Toyota Corolla. They're both right. They're just focusing on different details. They're, they're recounting different things. And if they're saying those different things, that sounds more true, more accurate. It doesn't sound as accurate if they all say exactly the same thing in exactly the same way. It sounds fabricated. It sounds like a conspiracy. Now, you can read the four accounts of Jesus' life and death, and, and notice that the disciples, the eyewitnesses, they don't come off looking great themselves, actually. They didn't really uh, paint themselves in the best light. But compare, the best place to go is having a look at the four accounts of the resurrection. How different the four testimonies of the resurrection are. Now, some people will say, aha, see, they can't agree on the basic details that Jesus rose from the dead. They're all making it up. But, of course, the opposite is true. We get four different accounts, four different perspectives, four different testimonies of what happened on that day. It's exactly what a trial lawyer would expect from four different perspectives. They ring true because they're not exactly the same. My point is that I think these eyewitnesses can be trusted as reliable. We are more than justified in believing that Jesus is the Son of God who rose from the dead. There is more evidence, and Jesus is just actually getting started at this point. Verse 36, he says, I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. You want evidence, says Jesus? Just look at what I'm doing. There was someone bedridden for 38 years, I cured like that. I turned water into wine, not a little bit of water, huge amounts of the stuff into you know, Penfold's Grange, good wine. As we'll see next week, Jesus feeds a massive crowd, more than 5,000 people, out of one lunchbox. He casually then just walks across a giant lake, across the top of the giant lake. Jesus heals the blind, cures the sick. He even raises the dead and, of course, tops it all off with his own resurrection after being very dead for three days. These are not party tricks. They are only the sorts of things that God himself can do. Now, in our day and age, many people will say, well, I don't believe in miracles. It all sounds impossible, sounds ridiculous. I shouldn't be expected to believe all that. And it's an important question, isn't it? I mean, one level, it's hardly a problem if there is a God. Of course, if there is a God, miracles can happen, no problem. But if you're unsure about God's existence, uh, it's worth thinking more about Jesus' miracles and not discounting them out of hand. 
So even his fiercest enemies, uh, those who hated him, they acknowledged he could do miraculous things. You see this in John's Gospel all through the Bible, actually. They believed he was just using demonic power, not that he wasn't doing cool things. Not one of his enemies says, no, nah, he's faking it. It's the opposite. His enemies actually basically target him because he is doing great deeds. Even outside of the Bible, uh, people recording history, they mentioned Jesus was known for incredible deeds. Uh, I think things will be on screen. This guy, Josephus. Uh, Josephus was writing about AD 90, about the same time John was writing this gospel. Josephus is not a Christian. Um, uh, he's a Jewish man, good friends with uh, powerful Roman emperors and things like that. Um, Josephus mentions Jesus in passing in one of his books. At this time, there appeared Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of people, and he gained a following both among many Jews and among many of Greek origin. I just point that out because historically, Jesus was widely known and believed to be able to do startling deeds, miraculous things. And please don't think for a moment it's because people back then were stupid and gullible and, you know, we're so much more intelligent. Uh, that'd be very historically arrogant of us, wouldn't it? People back then knew just as much as we do that people don't walk on water. They were more familiar, actually, with many things that we don't, don't really see day to day. For instance, they knew probably better than we do that people do not come back to life after being dead. They were far more familiar with death as a matter of, of day to day than we are in our culture that we never really see a dead body. I think the only difference between our culture and theirs in one level is because, well, they were open to the possibility of miracles. And many modern people assume miracles can't happen. So I ask you, which is the more open-minded culture? Now, when I was a uni student, um, I was at Adelaide Uni, and I stumbled uh, once or twice into the Adelaide Uni Library, uh, which is a strange place to be as an engineering student, I tell you. Um, they assumed, actually, that engineers don't read at all, so they never even bothered to show us where the library was or to teach us how to get around. So I got pretty lost. Uh, and I ended up uh, in a section of the library about Jesus and history. Um, I had a few hours because I was a uni student, all this time on my hands. I had a bit of a flick through one book I found, and uh, it was clearly written by someone who had all this historical data in front of them. They fully agreed Jesus was famous for doing miraculous things. But the author clearly didn't believe miraculous things could happen, didn't fit with the way they saw the world. They kind of very awkwardly try to shuffle past this problem. How can it be famous for miracles but not actually be able to do miracles? Like, how, that is a problem, isn't it? And they try to explain how that could be possible. Um, their best argument to account for how Jesus became famous for miracle working is that he may have spent some of his childhood in Egypt, which we know is probably true. Uh, sorry, it is true from the Bible. Uh, we don't know how much, of his Egypt, how much of his childhood. Anyway, he may have spent some of his childhood in Egypt learning sleight of hand and magical tricks from the magicians in Egypt. And he comes back and, you know, deceives all these people with sleight of hand. Now, to be fair to this author, I'll give them points for effort and creativity, and at least they tried to come up with some kind of alternative explanation. They tried. They didn't just ignore the fact that Jesus was famous for his miracle working. Slight problem, perhaps, is that, um, well, coming back to life after being dead for three days isn't exactly a sleight of hand trick, is it? See, we are more than justified in believing Jesus is the Son of God. We are more than justified in giving him our lives. Because he did all these wonderful things, miraculous things, we have extra evidence that supports our faith. Now, Jesus doesn't say this in the passage here, but I would also add, we can take on as additional evidence what works Jesus is still doing in our world, not what he just did back then, but what he's still doing. Uh, many of you will know and will have experienced miraculous answers to prayer, incredible things. Uh, we all have probably heard of an incredible work of lives getting completely changed around, transformed. Communities change as they hear about Jesus. 
I mean, Jesus' work includes, I think, our culture, working through history to get a culture that actually cares about the poor or the marginalised. Our own culture, with its fantastic focus on human dignity and uh, human rights, um, we owe that all to Jesus' teaching. Uh, The ancient world, they didn't care at all about the weak and the poor. The modern world does, and it could all be traced very easily back to Jesus. But the way he changes lives, I think, is astounding. A few years ago, I read uh, an autobiography uh, by this man, I'll be on the screen. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right, but his name is Tuho Isaac. Um, He was once very high up in the New Zealand um, outlaw gang, um, the Mongrel Mob. His life was incredibly violent, uh, abusive, evil, like in and out of jail. Uh, His book is actually very hard to read because he's very upfront about the way that he was so hard and callous and cold and just hated people and he hurt them. But then one day he heard about Jesus uh, and he was just captured by who Jesus is, that Jesus could forgive even him and could transform his life. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. Uh, This man is now an entirely different man, a new man, as Jesus promises us. And he's now investing his whole life in telling as many people as he can about the good news of Jesus. He's actually just one of millions, billions, I think, who can testify to the way that Jesus does change our life. It's great evidence to add to the pile. But Jesus is not done yet, is he? Uh, He has saved his most respected, his most reliable witness till last. He gets to verse 37 and he says... The Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. Now, it's hard to know, actually, is Jesus referring to a specific thing the Father has said or done? It's hard to know. Um, We do know at Jesus' baptism, uh, God's voice was heard saying, this is my son. That's like the testimony of God the Father. But then Jesus' main focus here is how the Father has testified is it's through Scripture. It's through Scripture. Now, as Jesus said this, of course, they didn't have the New Testament, uh, As he talks about Scripture, he's talking about what we would call the Old Testament. And the people he's talking to, they have studied the Scriptures. They know them back to front. And Jesus makes an amazing claim at the end of verse 39 here, these very Scriptures testify about me. They are witness to Jesus. This literature, written many hundreds of years before his birth, it's evidence, he presents, that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, as Christians, as we read the Old Testament, we really ought to have these words of Jesus in our minds because it will help us read the Old Testament well. It will help us see what is plainly there to be seen all through, that God has promised long ago to enter this world, to gather his people, to fix our hearts, our hearts that were corrupted by sin, he'll do something about. And in the Old Testament, there are symbols, there are word pictures, there are patterns that all point to Jesus and are fulfilled in him. So be able to look back at the Old Testament and seeing how God has planned and promised all along to bring a perfect sacrifice for sin. How he's promised and planned to bring a king, a great king, who will rule the whole world with justice and mercy. And to see that he's promised all along a kingdom that we can belong to, that's not tainted by evil and suffering. We can look back and see how Jesus answers all of those promises. So as Christians, we really should be reading the Old Testament. Um, Keep reading the Old Testament because it will build up our faith in Jesus. It will help add to that evidence that he is the saviour we need and it will help convince us that he's the king that we should serve with our whole lives. Because in Jesus we see what God has promised being beautifully fulfilled. Now so far, uh, it has sounded a little bit like Jesus is a lawyer defending himself, hasn't it? And that's partly my fault, but um, I suggested at the start that we could um, kind of be like a jury, weigh up the evidence and make up our own minds. It's as if Jesus is on trial, I said, Actually, that's very mistaken, we realise, when we get to verse 40. 
In verse 40, Jesus completely pulls out the rug from under those Jewish leaders he's talking to. Uh, And from verse 40, Jesus makes it very clear he's not the one on trial here. This is not Jesus' trial at all. And of course he's not. Just a few sentences back, we saw last week, he told us he's the judge of the world. Who's going to judge the judge? Of course not. He is the judge. He's not on trial. The Jewish leaders are. Which means the evidence Jesus is laying out here is part of the verdict. He's showing there is more than enough evidence by their own standards to show they are guilty. Despite all the evidence, verse 40, they refuse to come to Jesus to have life. So the evidence isn't the problem. Their hearts were the problem. They just didn't want to come to him. They didn't want to belong to him. Jesus is saying it's not because there's not enough evidence. He's saying it's a matter of the heart. I think this tells us that on the day of judgment, Jesus simply won't accept the excuse, look, Jesus, I couldn't believe in you. There wasn't enough evidence. He'll give the verdict like he's doing here. There was more than enough evidence, but you refused. For the Jewish leaders, uh, Jesus points out, by their own standards, Moses, their great standard, um, even, even with Moses, Moses, they had everything they need to see that Jesus is God's promised Messiah. Moses wrote about him. It seems to me that those who say, well, I couldn't believe in Jesus because I can, I can only believe in what can be proven beyond reasonable doubt. Jesus will say, well, even by that standard, you are guilty of failing to follow where the evidence goes because all the evidence does point to me. What this passage demonstrates is that how we respond to Jesus is not just a matter for our heads. That's super important. What matters is how humble our hearts are and how open we are to letting Jesus really rule our lives. So can I encourage us all, uh, next time we're wrestling with doubts and struggling uh, with unbelief, and that will happen for all of us from time to time, of course. As that's happening next time, I encourage us to put our, see if we can put our finger on if there's an issue of temptation or sin alongside that doubt, because often that temptation might be motivating us to doubt. So I think the way that works is when our heart is set on something, um, we're very good at using our minds to justify and convince us that that thing's a good thing. So if our hearts are wanting something that we know Jesus isn't okay with, he's not okay with, somehow doubt kind of works to undermine and work alongside that temptation, because our heart actually drives how we think. We think we're so rational, but our heart drives how we think. So perhaps like me, you've had conversations with people that starts off with you know, them uh, having some intellectual problem with God or you know, the very, um, very big doubts they have about some, um, some part of the Bible, whatever it may be. Good conversation to have. But as the conversation goes on, it often becomes clear that that doubt is actually underpinning a reason they want to have to doubt God and to go and have what their heart really wants. So let me wrap up uh, this, this uh, in a few ways to help us respond to this part of God's word well. Uh, for those here who are investigating whether Jesus is who he says he is um, before you sort of come to follow him, uh, it's so great you're doing that. And I urge you to keep going, uh, keep looking into the evidence and keep going where the evidence leads you. And bear in mind as you go that it is very hard to be purely objective in this when it comes to Jesus. Uh, be aware of our own tendency to downplay or to dismiss evidence out of hand, not because it's bad evidence actually, but because our hearts can realise before our heads what it might mean if it's true what it might mean to bow our knee before Jesus, the Son of God. But do take it from the billions of followers around the world. He is a good king to serve. So keep, keep going where the evidence points you. 
For our whole church, as I suggested earlier, it would be a good thing to make a goal of reading through a book on apologetics this year. Maybe one you've already got on your shelf you've been meaning to get to, uh, maybe one in a bookstall here later in the year. But more than that, let's keep going as a church uh, that has a really good culture where it feels okay to ask tough questions, where it's okay to talk about our doubts, the things we're struggling with and the things we're thinking through. It's good to have that culture where we're talking about, thinking about those things with one another because it does build up our faith as we do that. And as good as it is to explore those deep questions together, the best way to keep building up our faith is to keep reading the Bible, to keep seeing how it all testifies to Jesus, to keep seeing how the Scriptures do fit together so beautifully, pointing us to Him. I suppose on that point, uh, many of us at the start of a new year do kind of try and recommit to good Bible reading uh, habits um, the year's not far in, and uh, if it hasn't worked out quite the way you'd hoped so far, like it hasn't for me so far with Bible reading, um, now's a good time to just have another go at it. Uh, keep going. Make some changes this week. Why not? Give it a go. But finally, I think this passage helps us be very thankful that God has given us many, many good reasons to trust Jesus and who he says he is. We can trust that he is the Son of God who came to save us from our sins. So let me lead us in prayer, being thankful for these things. Lord God, we do thank you for how kind you are in the way that you've provided us with so many ways and so many reasons that lead us to have belief and you give us plenty of ways that grow and build up our confidence in the things we believe. Please help us all this year as we read your word, as we spend time in prayer and time with each other. Please keep guarding our hearts from unbelief. Please help us all grow all our days in our confidence that the Lord Jesus is the Son of God who gives life. Amen. Thanks, Luke. Um, we do have a, an anonymous SMS line, so uh, as I'm preaching, you can send in questions, and uh, it's a good way to kind of, yeah, perhaps do what I was talking about today. It's good to ask tough questions, not that I can promise good answers, but uh, we had a really good question come in, um, just if I have any suggestions for, of good apologetics books, potentially for Christians and non-Christians, uh, we could share it with. Thank you. Uh, so thank you so much to the person who uh, sent in the message. Um, one of the reasons I didn't kind of give you a list of books is uh, apologetics books can be very specific, uh, and there might be a particular question that person has, they might have a background, say if it's a Muslim person, you're probably trying to pick a very particular type of book for them, it's not just a general kind, you're not trying to convince them God's real, um, so there, there are all kinds of books that are dealing with all kinds of issues, so for this question I'm going to speak to the very general level, uh, apologetics, um, probably the best one, the most well received one I'm aware of is Tim Keller's The Reason for God, uh, many of you will have that on your shelf or have read it yourselves, so Tim Keller, The Reason for God, is probably one of the best general level uh, kind of apologetics, very popular uh, book. Uh, another one I've come across recently that uh, is great for those who might have grown up in the church but kind of wandered away from the faith. Uh, it's called Seven Reasons to Reconsider, or Seven Reasons to Reconsider Christianity by Ben Shaw. Seven Reasons to Reconsider Christianity by Ben Shaw. Great, uh, very, very readable uh, and very compelling uh, kind of book. Um, third one that comes to mind that uh, was helpful for me as a young adult was The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. It's pretty dated now. Um, I mean, the argument's still the same, but uh, uh, yeah, that's a really good book about the resurrection of Christ and some of the historical kind of things, some of them which I mentioned today, uh, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Um, it's a thick book. Uh, it's not hard to read. It's just thick, which means sometimes giving it to people who don't read very much isn't that helpful, but very helpful for the Christians to read it and be able to give you the digested version to someone else. There's hundreds of books. There's the first three I can think of. Um, there's others here who have read far more on apologetics than I have, um, but yeah, there's a good start for you. Thanks.